Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. We are now into the 8th week of the nationwide lockdown to counter the spread of the coronavirus. There has been some relaxation of restrictions and a slow resumption of limited economic activity. Yet the lockdown continues to exercise a stranglehold on the Indian economy. Unemployment has touched historic highs with millions of workers out of their jobs and businesses going under. While it is broadly agreed that the economy as a whole must be experiencing severe distress, we still need a more granular understanding of the shocks that workers, businesses and households are currently enduring. Only then can we have an informed discussion on what the government could do to address the current situation and what should be its medium to long-term approach to resuscitating the economy. To discuss these questions and more, I am joined today by Mahesh Vyas. Mahesh is the managing director and CEO of the Center for Monitoring the Indian Economy or CMIE. At CMIE, he is the principal architect of their proprietary databases. Mahesh has created the Consumer Pyramids database by setting up one of the largest, fastest and technologically most advanced household surveys in India. Besides other applications of this database, he has also initiated and created the first set of fast frequency macroeconomic indicators captured by any private agency in India and was previously associated with Centurion Bank and Quantum Asset Management Company Limited. Mahesh, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be on this. Mahesh, it's now into the fourth phase of this national lockdown. And I was wondering if you could get us started off by talking about how you see the state of play with the Indian economy at the moment. Well, this is unprecedented. Uh, we have never seen a situation of this kind. We have never seen a situation where the economy has been brought down to a lockdown for a period of nearly two months. So um, it is almost impossible for us to fathom the uh, impact of such a lockdown on the Indian economy. We have been trying to understand this beyond the emotional outbursts by seeing what is happening to migrants. We are trying to understand this by looking at the data that emerges. And the data that emerges tells us that the economy is going to shrink big time this year. And the impact of this on households is going to be quite devastating. Uh, we have seen some pain in the demonetization followed by GST that came soon thereafter. But I think this is uh, much larger in scale. The impact of this on households' well-being is going to be very, very, very dramatic. So one of the things that uh, your data has been showing up, and I'm here referring to the data that is coming out of your Consumer Pyramids Household uh, Survey, you know, which, which is this very large survey. It's almost continuously in operation uh, where you cover about uh, 175,000 households. And uh, you know, already from for the past three or four weeks, uh, this survey has been showing that 
unemployment figures have really touched historic highs as far as the Indian economy is concerned. Could you just tell us a little bit about how exactly we come to those kinds of numbers and what might be the longer term causes beyond simply the lockdown? You're right. Uh, this is a continuous survey. It's called the Consumer Pyramids Household Survey, CPHS. Uh, we have been doing this since 2014, uh, January 2014. The survey is conducted over the entire panel of households, which is 175,000, over a period of four months. And as soon as the uh, survey is complete in a four-month period, the second wave begins. So the survey is continuous, and it is continuously trying to assess the situation of the households of India by asking questions to this panel of 175,000 households over a period of four months on a continuous basis. The survey is also organized such that an equal number of households are interviewed every month, or I may say, every week. Effectively, we visit the same household every 16th week. Every week, therefore, we have a sample that is large enough, more than 10,000 households spread all over the country. And uh, this is representative enough for us to make statements every week on what is happening to the Indian economy. Now, after the uh, lockdown was announced, uh, the survey uh, ran into some trouble because the survey is conducted through face-to-face -face interviews by interviewers visiting the households of the respondents. Because of the lockdown and social distancing, we could not go to the households. But in less than a week, we reorganized ourselves to conduct the same interviews and the complete interview on telephones. Since this is a panel, we have a relationship with the households. They know us. We have the telephone numbers. We have their consent repeatedly over many waves. So it was easy for us to reach out to them and ask them to um, give all the details during the lockdown as they were giving it to us when we visited their households. So that was uh, a very useful thing. And we could quickly gauge uh, what is happening to the Indian economy, even as the house, uh, as the lockdown played itself. What we find in this is that um, there was a precipitous fall in labor participation rate. And there was a corresponding increase in the unemployment rate. So the labor participation rate, uh, which according to us for the country as a whole, was of the order of 42 to 43% before the lockdown was announced, dropped down to 35.5%. That's a huge fall. Since it's a proportion of the working age population, this means a lot of people have actually left the labor markets effectively because there were no jobs available. And even the few that were left in the labor market this small 35.5% of the working age population had a huge unemployment rate of, of the order of 24%. The unemployment rate that we had seen earlier uh, in uh, March 2020 uh, was 8.5% or a little more than 8%. And that shot up to 23.5% in April. The unemployment rate has been rising steadily 
from around uh, 6 to 7% in 2017. And it rose in 18, 19, uh, and had gone up to in the range of 7 to 8%. The labor participation rate was around 42 to 43%, and an unemployment of 7 to 8%. What has happened because of the lockdown is that the unemployment rate has shot up to 24%, and the labor participation rate is down to 35.5%. So what we see over here is quite stressful. So Mahesh, just to unpack those two uh, ratios a, a little bit more. Now, I can understand quite intuitively, as all of us would, that you know, in the context of a lockdown, you know, there are not that many jobs. So I, I presume that a lot of the people uh, who are contributing to the rise in the unemployment number itself are, you know, perhaps daily wage workers. You know, we've, we've seen all the story with migrant workers, etc. But what in your reading is explaining this labor force participation shortage? Because that seems to be, as you're saying, it's a withdrawal from the labor force, right? I mean, it suggests a, a degree of unwillingness even to be on the job market looking for a job, so to speak. Uh, am, am I getting that right? You're right. And uh, we were actually totally taken aback when we saw this the first time during demonetization. So before demonetization, we uh, got numbers like uh, 49 to 50% for labor participation rate. And this dropped, not as precipitously, but dropped systematically down to uh, 43% or so, and then came down after GST even further. What seems to be happening is that um, when you have a shock of, of the kind that we saw in demonetization, and even worse, uh, in the case of the lockdown, a large part of the labor which is engaged in the unorganized sectors and that, that are employed informally leave the labor markets because they do not find any scope of finding any jobs at all. So typically during demonetization, what happened is uh, if you have uh, industrial workers in an industrial town, the entire industrial town is in such turmoil that the person who lost his job in, let us say, a small uh, factory knows that every other factory is laying, out, laying off people. <clears throat> so the probability of his getting jobs or her getting jobs is extremely low. There are no jobs available. And therefore, those people just quit the labor market saying that we are not looking for jobs. What's the point of saying I'm looking for a job? Because we know that none are available. This time, in lockdown, the shock is even bigger. And therefore, people are saying, if you ask them, uh, are you employed? They say, no, uh, that's okay. We say, so are you looking for a job? Are you willing to work and looking for a job? They say, we are willing to work, but we are not looking for a job because there are no jobs available. And many of them say they're not even willing to work because they just say, this is not the time to be looking for jobs. Uh, for example, we want to go home. So the fall in the labor participation rate is a statement by labor saying that uh, we are extremely disappointed that there are no jobs available. Uh, you are mocking us by asking us whether you are looking for a job or not. So in a sense, the labor force participation is also a function of what their horizon of expectation is. Uh, it's, it's not just about immediate opportunities, but what they think are the kinds of opportunities that they will have even in the short to medium term. 
Yes, yes. And this is particularly the case with the people who are organized in the informal sectors, uh, informally in the unorganized sectors. Right. And uh, Mahesh, you've also argued, uh, and you've been writing about this, that uh, in a sense, the you know, the unemployment which has been imposed by the lockdown is not just going to be limited to the informal sector, but will eventually creep up on the formal sector as well. And, and that there are going to be these knock-on implications. Could you unpack for our listeners how exactly this dynamic is going to play out? Well, it has crept beyond the informal sectors already. So that is what is a lot more dreadful. So what we found, and this is based on uh, the data we collected during the month of April. So in April, as I mentioned earlier, the unemployment rate shot up to 23.5%, almost 24%. What uh, we saw is that there was a sharp fall in employment. Now, if you calculate the number of people employed in the year 2019-20, India had 404 million people employed. And uh, in April, it had 282 million people employed. So effectively, 122 million people lost their jobs. On a base of 404 million, 122 million people lost their jobs. Now, What's important is the composition of this loss of jobs. 91 million jobs were lost of small traders, street hawkers, wage laborers, those kinds of people. These are the people in the uh, unorganized sectors, employed in the unorganized sectors very, very informally. Uh, Their uh, income depends upon the uh, city or the village uh, actually working that day. If it doesn't, then they lose income for that day. So of the 122 million jobs lost, 91 million were lost among small traders and daily wage earners. This is understandable. What is difficult and what is really disturbing is that nearly 18 million jobs were lost among salaried employees. Now the base was 86 million. So from 86 million, this count came down to 68 million, implying that 18 million salaried employees have lost their jobs. So it's not only the informal sector within one month that lost jobs, but salaried employees also did. But these salaried employees are not necessarily only contractual. They're even those who are regular employees. So the hit is on those people who had jobs that were reasonably secure in a sense. And even those people have lost jobs. But this is not the only problem. What we notice is people who declared themselves as business people. These are people who have got fixed assets. It could be a shop, it could be a factory, it could be a small factory, it could be a large factory, it could be a consulting firm. There were 78 million of this and this dropped to, uh, to, to 60 million. That means another 18 million jobs lost over here. Now, when a businessman says that he is unemployed, he implies that his business is not only shut, but there isn't any hope of it reviving even if the lockdown opens tomorrow. So it's not just the informal sector, but the salaried employee who will find it difficult to find a job. And also the business person who is the person who's going to give the jobs to the informal employees or the salaried employees. So the hit in April was already beyond the informal sector. 
Right. And what do you think is the composition of which parts of the formal sector have got most affected? I mean, is it possible for us to gauge those kinds of details about saying which sectors within the formal economy are the ones which have been at the forefront of taking the hit? I understand it might be more widespread than uh, being concentrated. Uh, we don't have those numbers as yet. We require a larger sample to come in for us to cut it by more than one uh, dimension. So I can cut it by your occupation, but to cut within the occupation by industry, the sample becomes too small for us to uh, make uh, strong statements. So I'd like to refrain from that for, for now. But it is very evident that um, all non-farm sectors have seen a fall. And the farm sector has seen an increase in employment. Now, this is disguised unemployment, of course. So 6 million jobs were added to the farming in April. This is disguised unemployment, but every other industrial segment, in a sense, has seen a hit. Uh, we know from other uh, information that uh, the hit is quite large in, uh, for example, aviation and um, a host of other industries. So transport sector is hit very badly, uh, which starts from the aviation sector. and. Um, goes down to whether it is ports or railways or um, buses. Uh, so all of that, I think, is the most important sectors that have been hit. Go down to hotels, restaurants, tourism, and services sector in general. But the retail segment, which is um, a distribution of food and now even uh, non-essential items, is kicking and, and doing well. So these are more anecdotal evidences and not uh, arising from my data crunching as yet. I think I will wait for the end of May before I add up the numbers to see if I can slice them um, a little more to understand the industry composition of this. Sure. And uh, could you just take a step back from this particular situation? And because CMI has been tracking Indian businesses uh, so closely for all these years now, you know, uh, and you've been pointing out, you've been one of the first people to point out this continuous decline in private investment in capital formation, uh, you know, through your sort of, uh, you know, research and your database. So, you know, what does this crisis really mean for Indian business? I mean, because they were already in, in a situation where we saw that, you know, your, uh, you know, investment was falling, there was already a collapse in demand even before this crisis came upon us. So, you know, how do you think this entire situation is going to impact on Indian businesses and their outlook going forward? So first, let's look at the data. Uh, we have two ways uh, by which we study the performance of businesses in India. One is we study the um, audited financial statements of uh, small, medium, and large companies. So it has to be a company, uh, a company that produces a financial statement uh, submitted to the government of India, which uh, is the source from where we get this information. When we add all these up, uh, we find that there has been a significant fall in the growth in net fixed assets of companies. Now, there was a, uh, a peaking of the growth in Netflix assets of companies, and then it started falling from the financial statements. There was a small pickup around 2000, 
five six, and then it came crashing again. What is important to see in the financial statements of companies is that the year two thousand eighteen nineteen, which is the year just before the one that just got over, uh, we saw that net fixed assets growth of companies fell to its lowest since nineteen ninety one. It grew by barely five percent in nominal terms in the year 2018-19. Now that 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 was also a year in which the corporate sector did pretty well on its top line growth and also on its profits growth. So, in spite of a good increase in profits, companies chose not to invest into Netflix assets. This is across ownership segments. This is across industries as well. This is across manufacturing, mining, construction, and uh, the services sectors, the non-financial services sectors. So there's some statement that I see over here being made by investors saying that we are not investing. Now, um, beginning three or four years before this, we saw a trend. That companies were increasingly taking their profits out of the company as dividends and leaving lesser and lesser on the table for investments. So the dividend the dividend payout became bigger, and uh, retained earnings became smaller and smaller systematically. And then finally, companies decided not to invest at all into net fixed assets. So this is the first thing that we see that the company's balance sheets tell us that. India Inc is not interested in investing into new capacities in India. Now, the second database that we have in studying investments in the business sector in India is called CapEx, where we track the intentions of industries to set up capacities. And once they um, make these intentions known, we track the uh, implementation of the projects. To understand if those intentions are getting converted into new capacities or not. Now, these intentions had peaked at twenty-six trillion rupees in two thousand eight-nine. They came down from there gradually and then precipitously. In two thousand eleven-twelve, they were down to sixteen trillion. So 26 trillion became 16 trillion in 1213. It was down to 10 trillion. Then in 1516 it came back. So 1516 seems to be a little bit of a revival year for investments. We saw that in the company financial statements, and we saw this in capex as well. So new investment proposals shot up to 21 trillion. But mind you, they did not touch the 26 trillion that we saw in 2008-9. And all these numbers are in nominal terms. If you adjust them for inflation, it looks even worse. Now, in 2019-20, this is down to 11 trillion. So, uh, industry is not invest investing into new capacities at all. This actually makes sense because the capacities created in the recent past, nearly over the last 10 years, is barely getting fully utilized. According to the survey conducted by the Reserve Bank of India called OBICUS, capacity utilization as of December 2019 was only 68 percent. If you don't have capacity utilization which is well above 80 percent, industrialists do not invest into new capacities. So we really have a long way to go 
before capacity utilization reaches that level by which industry will start investing. Now, if industry does not invest, and I don't see a reason why they should be investing for the next maybe even two years or maybe even more than that, I see no way in which formal employment can come back. And therefore, any hope of growth being in the positive zone for the next at least one year is next to impossible. Right. And this obviously has a bearing on something that you uh, indicated up front, which is on Indian households uh, and their consumption patterns, which also your survey has been tracking. So could we talk a little bit about how all of this is looking at the level of a household? See, the best way of looking at this at the level of the household is to see what do households say about their income levels. So there are two different surveys on this. So I'll talk about the one that um, my colleague Kaushik Krishnan did with uh, Marian Bertrand uh, and uh, Shofield from Wharton School, uh, which asked people this question that during the lockdown, uh, has your income shrunk? And we found that 86% of the households said that their incomes have shrunk during the lockdown compared to what they were earning before. 86% people saying that their income has shrunk is really a very big number. A very shocking number that they found also was that nearly two thirds of the households said that they cannot survive for more than a week uh, if their incomes did not come back again. They had income or they had means to survive only for a week more without having to seek external help. So households are very severely impacted. But you know, there's another way of looking at this, which is uh, we have been asking a systematic question since 2016, which is based on uh, consumer sentiment surveys conducted by University of Michigan. Uh, our survey is, um, is fashioned exactly on the way in which University of Michigan's uh, survey is uh, designed. Here we ask five questions, and one of them is, uh, is, your, is, is the financial well-being of your household today better than, worse than, or the same as it was compared to a year ago? And typically, we found answers which said that, which showed that around 35% of the households would say we are better off. Around 9% or max 10% would say we are, better, we are worse off. And the rest would say we are the same as before. In the month of April, this changed dramatically. 48%, 47%, sorry, of the household said that we are worse off compared to a year ago. And um, this was only around eight to nine percent earlier. So this, so the survey conducted by uh, Kaushik Krishnan and his colleagues, and the survey regularly done by CMI tells us that the incomes of households has been hit very badly. The index of consumer sentiments, which has a base of hundred in September December 2015, is down to forty just 40. That's a steep fall, both current economic conditions and consumer expectations are down to their 40s compared to a base of 100. So I think households are very stressed. We will get a better answer in early June, 
when we will be able to compare the actual incomes reported by the households in terms of rupees in the month of April to what it was earlier. You see, we will be able to capture the April income only after the month of April is over. So the sure. month of April got over on 30th. And in the month of May, we are asking, what did you earn in April? So by the end of May, we will get to know from a good sample what the income is. And then we'll compare again what happened to the incomes. But the initial indications are that it's a pretty bad hit. And, you know, this household picture that you painted, I mean, uh, there is always a gender dimension to this problem as well, right? I mean, which is that women typically tend to bear disproportionately the cost of not having access to the labor market or being forced into the care economy, so to speak. And, you know, this happens in every historic pandemic, you know, uh, the, the, there's a disproportionate burden on women to look after the sick, the elderly, the children, and generally take care of the household even more than they normally do which means that their uh, ability to go out and earn something is also shrinking in this context. We saw this uh, hit on women uh, in a big way post-demonetization. So the, so the shock of demonetization was largely borne by women in India. The fall in labor participation rate is almost entirely, um, almost entirely borne by the women. Uh, men labor participation rate did not fall and women fell. But now it has fallen so badly that the scope for further fall in the labor participation rate of women is extremely small. So we didn't see as much of a fall of women labor participation rate now because it is already so low. It's down to something like in single digits. Right. So you can't fall any further in a sense. But the fall in the demonetization phase was really uh, very strong. So we have been watching this since then and seeing wave after wave what is happening to the women. And wave after wave, the inverted U-curve of age against um, labor participation rate saw a fall. So every U-curve, inverted U-curve was lower than the previous inverted U-curve. Every wave saw a fall in that. And just one wave ago, no rather two waves ago, we saw the new cohorts, the younger age women coming back into the labor force, which is fascinating. And then came this uh, pandemic and I think they must have gone back again. But the scope for women withdrawing even further from the labor force is limited now. And this seems particularly tragic because women are entering higher education in historically unprecedented numbers in India. Yes. So there is almost no difference between higher education of men and women now. That has narrowed so much that there's almost no point in saying there's a difference over there. So why are women not coming to the labor force? So initially the argument was that women do not come to the labor force because they choose to do higher education. But that story is over. Then was the story that it's because the income levels of the households are increasing and women find it more beneficial for them to stay back at home, take care of children for their better future. But I think there's a new story which is emerging, uh, which is that jobs, or rather there is this spread of the urban areas. So urban areas are not small urban areas anymore. 
Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore, Hyderabad, uh, and the rest of them all are really sprawling uh, urban centers. And the transport uh, infrastructure from the outskirts to the main town are not good enough as yet. Women don't find it safe to travel after dark uh, from far off places to places where work is and go back home again. So I think there's a need for improving infrastructure, for improving the safety of women, both in the workplaces and in transportation back and forth from work to enable women to come into the labor markets again. So I think there's a need for a big increase in public infrastructure to ensure that women do enter the labor force. I don't think it is only a case of uh, income levels having gone up and women not desirous to work. We see, we see women coming into the labor force and then dropping off. We need to ensure that they do not drop off again. What is it that holds them uh, from going back into the labor force? There is a problem which is structural, but there is also a problem which is cyclical which is that today investments are so low that good quality jobs are rare to come by. So if the jobs are mostly of poor quality, then women are less likely to take up those jobs. Poor quality right. jobs are those where security is lesser, income is even lesser. So I think we require to improve the overall ecosystem to motivate women to come into the labor markets. A last kind of more speculative question. Uh, what do you think the pattern of recovery from this particular crisis is going to be. Uh, in your writings, you have pointed out that, you know, even after demonetization, for instance, there was just no going back. You can't just, you know, set the clock back to what it was earlier. Uh, clearly, this is going to be very, very different. Uh, but still, I was wondering if you could speculate a little bit on what do you think the pattern of recovery is going to be? What is it going to take to restore labor's confidence to want to be part of the labor force uh, once again? Uh, what, what is going to get us back on track, even if slowly and spread out over a period of time? Well, you used a very important word in your question to me, which is confidence. What will give labor confidence to come back to work? I think the confidence of, the, of labor has been pretty badly shaken, all segments. We just spoke about the shaken confidence of women because of, uh, because of lack of infrastructure, because of lack of sufficient safety, that women don't have the confidence to join and remain in the labor markets. The labor markets are not friendly uh, to a woman who is expecting. So there, I mean, we can say that you can take six months leave, that's what the law in India says, but it is still not safe for a woman to work if she is expecting or if she has to take care of children as well. There is a, a similar problem that is now applicable in a different sense to migrant labor, which is so devastated by what has happened to them now that they will find it extremely difficult to come back to the labor markets. After relaxation of the lockdown in some places, what has happened is the labor that was actually working has gone away. So in a sense, they were trapped. So we were actually using, in a weird sense, bonded labor, or at least trapped labor that actually wanted to go back home. But because there were no trains or buses to go back home, they were stuck in a city that they did not want to be in. And now that the lockdown is released or the migrants are allowed to go back, they're going back away. Now, 
what will give the confidence back to them that they will not be shortchanged so badly when they come back to the city they did see themselves getting shortchanged during demonetization the supply chains broke then and now again it happened when gst happened and now this lockdown is the worst of all so between 2016 and 2020 in four years they have had three big shocks this the shock that we are seeing to labor this time goes all the way to the youngsters just imagine uh, what will be the state of the cohort of um, young graduates who came into the labor market in 2019 most likely they have all lost their jobs or most likely those job offers made to many of them will be withdrawn so you will have a large cohort from either the 2019 batch or the 2020 batch that will actually have lost its jobs and will now compete for very few jobs along with the 2021 cohort we found that um, the job losses of april were disproportionately high amongst young people the young people that i'm counting over here are not only the new cohorts coming into the labor markets i'm caught, uh, i'm counting everyone who's less than 40 years of age 40 years of age is till where we saw this shrinking disproportionately high what this means is that this um this group which is relatively young which is the one that actually saves for a better tomorrow in the uh, in the understanding of uh, the demographic dividend we expect the young people to be employed we are facing a challenge over there and we expect the young people to save more we are facing a big challenge over there as well so i think the long term growth prospects are getting complicated in multiple dimensions that we need to appreciate that the younger people have lost confidence in the system and they are not going to be able to save enough for their future tomorrow so look at an entire generation and we will see big stress coming up in the future so we need to be better be prepared for that but that's for the long run in the med- in the medium term as well how are we going to come out of the situation all the measures taken by the government so far seem to be effectively talking in terms of increasing indebtedness of households of medium and small scale enterprises and of large companies i don't think we require to increase indebtedness what we require to do is increase demand and there is very little being done by the proposals being made by the finance minister around now to increase demand like i said before capacity utilization is only 68% how are we going to raise demand if there is no demand why will an entrepreneur take any credit at all because his goods or services will not find any takers with the low demand so i think we require to solve um multiple sets of problems a broken economy is the best way we can describe the supply chains are broken demand has shrunk supply lines are completely broken we have a financing problem we will have a huge npa problem coming up and we have a broken fisc and the monetary uh, system is not going to help in any of these things so the challenges are many to fix the economy to come back to shape mahesh this has been a very sobering conversation uh, but at the same time it's also been very illuminating uh, 
your insights uh, and the interpretation of the data and your surveys uh, has really been very useful in throwing light on so many dark corners of the story that is unfolding for us. We will continue to follow your work and that of CMI, and we really hope we can have you back on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. 